The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. Hello, Noggins and Neurons listeners. How are you doing? I hope this recording finds you all doing well. It's still hard to believe that Pete isn't here doing the podcast with me. You know, we met through email just about a year ago. And before I had time to change my mind, Pete and I started this podcast. We pretty much planned everything in about a month and hit the ground running. For our first story, we had to agree on music, and Pete sent me a couple samples. I had no idea he was a musician and that the samples were his. While I didn't think the music was right for the podcast, I am using one of his songs for this episode. If you listen to the very end, you'll be able to enjoy the song in its entirety. Now here's to Pete. So first things first, this is the part I really miss. Hi, Deb Battistella. How are you? 
I'm great, Pete Levine. How are you? I'm good. Are you super excited about our first, very first pre-episode podcast? I am super excited and maybe a tiny bit nervous. Yeah, we're a little nervous. Yeah, yeah. may as well just come out right up front and tell everybody we are quite nervous, but that's okay because um, I think that's very human and we're humans, so we're allowed to be nervous. Since that moment, together, we recorded 50 episodes. I love what we accomplished. I loved working with Pete on this project. It's interesting to me when I reflect on this time. I was not ready to do a podcast when he asked me if I wanted to. Like his family, friends, and colleagues, I was not ready for him to go. But here we are. We're moving forward. And I'm grateful for this amazing opportunity that I was granted. Doing the podcast with Pete, connecting with some of his friends and colleagues, and connecting with all of you is an incredible gift. Truly, it is beyond my wildest dreams. Personally, I like gifts that keep on giving. And so I was, I was really glad when Pete said he wanted the podcast to continue. Now, that's not to say I didn't experience a twinge of fear. I did. But hey, I'm human and I care. So I think that's normal. One of the goals we had for this podcast was to make information understandable and relevant to everyone who has an interest in stroke and brain injury recovery. So the agenda for, for this one was to give the heart and soul of this um, podcast noggins and neurons, and to try to give our perspective on where it should go in the future, what it should be about. Um, and we're just kind of brainstorming here more than anything. And I wonder um, if there's any first thoughts that you have uh, about where it should go and what you want it to be. Yeah, that's good. I like first thoughts. Um, for me, my first thoughts are, from a clinical perspective, because I am a clinician and I have worked in rehab my entire career. And over the course of that time, I have seen a tremendous amount of change and I've seen our medical system improve, but it always seems like there's some gaps. And I'm all about filling in the gaps. And if we could share our knowledge to fill in some of those gaps, help survivors have more confidence in themselves, in their rehab journey, if we could help people on the practical end, healthcare providers, know a little bit more about how to be themselves and use their knowledge to help people in the recovery process. That's kind of where my head's at. Yeah. And How so about maybe you? that's a good place to start. I mean, we're, we're talking about, we want it to be for caregivers. We want it to be for people with brain injury. We yeah. want it to be for students. We want it to be for clinicians that are in the field, anybody who's interested in this stuff. And I would extend it to anybody who's interested in brain plasticity generally, because Brain injury is a great entree into the whole brain. The brain is neuroplastic thing. 
Um, so the, the, I think our challenge is going to be, can we figure out a way to talk to all those populations at once? I mean, here's the good news. You got a hundred billion neurons, you got a quadrillion synapses, um, and they're controlling every one of the trillions of cells in your body. And they're doing it in the background without you thinking about it. And we're sitting here nervous about a podcast. You know, the brain <laughs> is doing so much of the work for us that it gives us an opportunity to think about how simple the brain makes it for us. I mean, all this neuroplastic stuff, we don't have to care where in the brain it happens or even how the brain does it. All we got to care about is that it's doing it. So if we do just this, if we give folks just the simple stuff that they have to do, basic core concepts like repetitive practice and focus and making things repetitive, challenging and meaningful and, and, and then filling in a little bit of the gaps. I think we can hit all those people. I mean, you know, as well as I do that students want it simplified, you know, as well as I do that clinicians hate complexity because it makes their job more difficult. And, you know, I often make a joke in, in the seminars I do, do they give you any time at work to do research? So the typical clinician doesn't have access to research, first of all, and then they give them no time to do research. What are they going to do? Go home after their hard day of work and start to look up things in clinical research. So I think if we make it simple, and it is simple because the brain is simple, it's going to benefit all those people, caregivers, stroke survivors, people with brain injury of all sorts, as well as clinicians and students. So that's what I'm hoping for, simple. I think we achieved our purpose. My reasoning for this is based on the podcast download numbers. Currently, we are almost at 24,500 downloads. And also from emails that we receive from some of you. We have had people tell us how the podcast has inspired their healing journeys, as well as changing their clinical practices. When I first had the idea for people to share their thoughts and Pete stories, I wasn't sure how people would respond, but decided to put it out there. I'm really glad I did, and I think you will be too as you listen to the kind words people have to say. Like I said when I put the offer out there, stories have the power to heal. I found an article by Lisa Rankin, MD, in Psychology Today that describes the process. She says, telling your story while being witnessed with loving attention by others who care may be the most powerful medicine on earth. Every time you tell your story to someone else who cares and bears witness to it, three things happen. The first two are physiological. Number one, you turn off the body's stress responses, flipping off toxic stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine. And two, you flip on relaxation responses that release healing hormones like oxytocin, dopamine, nitric oxide, and endorphins. The last piece speaks to our social nature. When we tell our stories and others bear witness, the notion that we are disconnected beings suffering alone dissolves. Again, 
Let me personally say I'm thankful for the caring community we have here at Noggins and Neurons and for everyone who shared their Pete stories. As I put this episode together, I was re-inspired by our conversations, and so I've included episode snippets and my thoughts throughout this podcast. I'm starting with Jenica Colvin. She's an occupational therapist and owner of Trio Rehab in Bernie, Texas. Jenica and her colleague, Suzanne McCrum, a physical therapist, joined Pete and I for two episodes back in October. Jenica and Pete had some fun social media connections, and we all formed an instant bond when we were recording. We had a lot of laughs throughout that process. Losing Pete was hard on Jenica, as it was on all of us, and I appreciate the chance to process this change with her. So what can we do to remember Pete? Well, I think that if we share our stories, our Pete stories, our thoughts about Pete and how much we enjoyed interactions with him and listening to the podcast and and things like that, I think that can help us all um, connect with each other and heal from this. It's sad. It's always sad when someone leaves us. Always. It is. So, so my thinking is because I always have my OT hat on, how do we make this meaningful for everybody who listens? Because I know that not everybody who listens knew him personally. And some people just know him through his work that he's done through the podcast. And some people, some people are friends, like some of his friends listen to the podcast. So if we keep it, kind of like meaningful to us, then I'm sure that it will be meaningful to others. Totally. Yeah. So I really appreciate that you uh, wanted to come on and and share your Pete stories and uh, remember him in this way. It's my pleasure. I'm excited. And and because I didn't get to actually ever meet Pete face to face, um, Deborah, you were kind enough to send me some questions. And so while I was reading through them, I kind of laughed because you know, some of them are funny and some of them, are, I don't even know how to answer them, but we can, we can shoot through them and see what I come up with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good idea. So how did you come to know Pete? Because I think I get the sense that you interacted, interacted with him um, before we had you on the podcast. So let's just let people know who is here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Jenica Colvin from Trio Rehab, who was on the podcast with Pete and I over the summer. Was it over the summer? It was in October because the kids were in school. Oh, all right. Let's start that part over. Or November. Who knows? I don't know. So Jenica Colvin was on the podcast with Pete and I to talk all about occupational therapy and the rehab that she and her team provide at Trio Rehab. In Texas. In Texas. In That's Bernie, an important thing. Yeah. Bernie, Texas. Bernie, Texas. Pete didn't know how to say it. No. And, so that was kind of funny. Um, so how did you come to know Pete or know of Pete? 
So we were, um, the therapist and I were just in the kitchen kind of chuckling about how I came to know Pete because it was somewhat of a random story. Um, I was doing a lot of walking over the summer because I'd had it come back from an injury, so I couldn't run. And I decided that I, I tend to get bored easily. My ADHD will kick in and, and I get bored very, very easily. So I'm um, almost 45 and I kind of like technology, but I send, I'd sometimes tend to push against it too. But I decided one day I was going to listen to these, try this new thing called a podcast. So I pulled up this podcast thing and I probably wrote in stroke or OT or something. And I liked your little cover. I don't know. I don't know. It's like an album cover. I don't know what, how you call, you call these things on podcasts, but it's just like I a little yours. logo, I think. Yeah. A little logo. It's your album cover. It's your, it's not a podcast. It's an album. <laughs> okay. And, and Pete might enjoy that, but, um, I pulled it up and I, I have no idea what number it was. Don't know. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, but I started listening and I thought, Oh, I like this. Like I kind of like Pete's cynical point of view with some things. And you would always make these very insightful comments because he would say something. And in my mind, I'd be like, yeah, but what about? And then you would say the exact thing. I'm like, yeah, exactly, Deb, you've got him. (laughs) (laughs) And he still had an answer. But at the end of that podcast, um, he had talked about his book, Stronger After Stroke. And I think that's probably where the whole relationship started because I'm sitting here looking on my Facebook and which is how I actually started conversing with Pete and Messenger on May 7th. Um, I was traveling up to Montana for a vacation and wasn't really sure what I was doing. So instead of sending a message, I sent a picture of his book. And the first thing he just said is, what page you got book there, Miss Jenica? <laughs> and that's, kind of the start of our relationship and the fact that I was like, oh, this famous author wrote me back, you know, let me bend his ear. What can I learn from him? And um, we started chatting. That was really how I started it. And, and when I had first heard his podcast, what I so enjoyed about what you guys talked about was the fact you made it simple. Um, and simple is always so good because the things that I learned from y'all were things that for me as a, you know, a seasoned practitioner after 20 so years, you just forget, you forget over time and, or you've been trained in it, but you get trained in so many separate kind of silos of spasticity versus this issue versus that issue associated with stroke that at times you, you don't pull it all together in a way that you could. So it was a good, good reminder. Very good. So that's where the whole relationship between kind of all of us started. It's kind of fun to hear about social media being Mm -hmm. a connector for us because we hear a lot of the negative aspects of social media, but it's a nice way to connect people who live on, we live on different sides of the country. We do. You know, and, um, Oh my gosh, I had a thought. What the heck was it? It was something that you just said. <laughs> it's the end of the day. We're tired. <laughs> yeah, this We're happens. At, at 10 p.m. It's 10 p.m. Nobody knows it's actually daylight, but it's <laughs> really <late>. sleepy. <laughs> um, no, it was great. God, it was gone. a great social oh. media connector. Yeah, go ahead. This is what I was thinking about. So he he was so personable. You know how some people who are involved in research and they're in academia, they just like, I don't know, they don't take the time. Mm -hmm. So just so you know, um, for all of you who are listening, Jenica just kind of did like a thumbs down thing. And um, 
Well, I think being seasoned practitioners, we've had plenty of opportunities to interact with people. And some people are very personable and some people are not even approachable. And he was both. Yeah. You know, he was a guy who was passionate about what he did and just wanted to share it with the world. And he always was very welcoming because I think I was on after like this lady out of Austin who was a neuroscientist and then Robert Tiesel. And I'm like, seriously, you're putting me up against these people. What the hell do I know? And he, his comment was so friendly and he didn't disregard anybody's intellect. He just quite frankly said, those people are in academia all day long. They're not out there in the field. And so it was a compliment towards both of us, but it made me feel at ease that I could come on and speak and whether I utilize what these researchers um, were trying to come to light or I had some of my own variation on those themes, it was okay. Yeah, everybody has something to offer. And he brought the researchers and the clinicians together. Yes. So that um, we could somewhere, I think, yeah, meet in the middle somewhere so that we, so that researchers know or maybe can start to understand what it's like to be a clinician trying to apply those principles to practice and, and what really happens in the clinic. And so that clinicians have the voice to say, hey, this is what really happens in the clinic. Like, I, what do I do with this information that you're giving to me if I don't know how to apply it? So, well, or how, how to apply it's one thing, but then just, you, you know, I can, I can, the trending theme in OT right now seems to be difficulty with patients that have some kind of cognitive alteration due to whatever brain injury occurred. And so when we have these researchers come in and they have fantastic, you know, evidence-based intervention, we're unfortunately, we still are dealing with the human condition. And, you know, I mean, no matter what, we still make bad choices every day, whether we're cognitively <laughs> intact or not. And so, I love that you say that. I actually had a patient one, one day ask me, okay, you all tell me that I have to do this, this, and this when I go home, but why are there so many overweight workers here in this facility? And I'm like, because we all make our choices. Yeah. Kind of like what you're saying. We still have our own... I don't even know the right word. Like we still well, have we our all, own we things. We all just that make bad choices. We <laughs> make good choices too. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, we got this far in life. But exactly. Yeah, not without bad choices. <laughs> We're all making our choices every day. And sometimes they're a lot of fun to make bad choices. So, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And that was something that I think Pete agreed with as well. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, from all that I know about Pete is he lived life out loud. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I will tell you some of the favorite memories, of course, always happened over our social media because we didn't, we didn't call each other anything. Um, but just being able to tease each other, because apparently, you know, I didn't know that he had resided in Texas. I'm not even sure at what age, but um he loved to tell me that the Texas was strong in me because he would sometimes put some posts up on the, on y'all's Facebook page about, Oh, I think he was frustrated at somebody. Oh, I won't say the name. There was a, um, there's a rehab company out there that was taking his material and plagiarizing it. And so I texted him and used some colorful metaphors 
And um, he appreciated that because I said, how dare them? You know, and I, I use other words of that. And he said, whoa, the Texas is strong with you. <laughs> so <laughs> just, just his interactions and his sense of humor and understanding that, you know, there are people out there that had his back because um, you don't do that. You don't plagiarize. That's not okay. That's his hard work, not anybody else's. So um, just the passion that he displayed, the passion that he wanted other therapists to be able to grasp and solicit that towards any brain injury patients are, those are always going to be your favorite things about a person, the passion that they share. Um, in one of our newsletters, Steven Spielberg gave some little speech one time. And he's like, if you can find the small voice that's telling you what to do, do it because the world's going to benefit from it. And from what I can tell, the world's going to benefit from some of the things that Pete was putting out there when it came to that passion and that research and the empathy, not only for the patient, of course, the client, but also the person, the therapist trying to help them with the best, the best they can. It's definitely a relationship that will be missed. And, and um, I wish I could have it back. <laughs> I know that is the thing that we always want is to have more of that. Yes. Was there one thing that you learned from your interactions with him or the podcast that you've applied to your practice? Oh, more than one. But the one that I think strikes out the most because I would get so frustrated is uh, spasticity. The way that he um, discussed spasticity, and I actually had to do some research and preparation for uh, a, a client coming in and as well as um, wanting to do some more education with a new, newer graduate at the clinic. And there's, there's like a step, how do I say there's like a steps ladder type approach um, for spasticity that clinicians can provide, that physicians can provide, medication can provide. I think there's two or three different approaches. And I don't recall, and I could be wrong, um, the approach that Pete was providing, which was using the cryotherapy, your cold therapy, um, and then getting that good 20, 30 minutes of attempt to build up the neuroplasticity to try to get some reorganization and have clients have a little bit of control. And, and you know, using that idea for the control that is really required, like you're not going to regain full control. It's all on spasticity with some of the folks I have, you know, modified Ashworth of three or four, but if you can elicit a little bit of control so that they can do a really gross grasp to be able to hold a coffee cup um, with the spastic upper extremity and open a door with the other, that that's huge. Mm -hmm. That's huge for some people. And so the intervention that intervention of the cryotherapy of getting that NMES on there and working on some, some kind of control, no matter how gross or fine it is, that's, that's what I really took away from y'all's podcast. And of course I listened to all of them, but my memory fails me now, fails me now. So that's what I remember the most. <laughs> well, there was a lot of information that we covered in, in that short time that we were together and there's more to come. So don't awesome. worry, there's more to come. Um, yeah, so the NMES is neuromuscular electrical stimulation, just in case somebody's um, not familiar with that term. Yeah. 
So you had sent me some other questions. My favorite podcast, Pete, memory. Um, I don't actually, like I said, my memory fails me now, but definitely the education. And knowing what I learned from Pete was um, was definitely the spasticity. And I'll always harp on the same drum, but knowing that there's books out there, there are studies out there, but having a place where you can go and listen and you can listen to a podcast repeatedly, which is amazing. You can fast forward through what you don't want to listen to or repeat it on a continuous loop until you can get it in your head. That's an online um, and easily accessible thing to listen to, you know, if you can't remember something and you can't find your book or you can't find it in your notes on your computer. Um, I just, I thought that, I think that's just great. I think it's great to put it all together and to let newer graduates or even therapists that have been around for a while have a place to go mm-hmm. and be able to listen to it, even with attached studies or attached links for items to purchase. And in all honesty, the Stronger After Stroke book, which I still utilize all the time, um, has been transformational because it just has it all in one location. So if I can't remember something about the sensory system, or if I can't tweak a certain thing that's bothering me, I can go back to that reference manual and look at it. And it helps a lot. I love that book. That book transformed my practice. It really opened, well, it opened my eyes to a lot more than what I learned in school. But the way Pete wrote about everything in such easy to understand terms, I felt very confident recommending that book to every person that I worked with who had a stroke. And um, the one part in the beginning, which I think I might have mentioned this in one of our first podcast episodes was when he wrote about how survivors will only get the interventions that the clinicians know about. Yes. And to challenge the clinicians, which I was like, that's a bold statement. But you know what? There's a lot of people that need to be challenged. Mm-hmm. And so I, I appreciated that, that he's I like, make too. sure your therapist are up to snuff. I'm like, oh, I better read this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's what I thought, too. I thought, well, I don't want to be that therapist. That's not. No. So <laughs> you better fake it if you get challenged. <laughs> oh, I know all about that. I will be a pro by tomorrow. Don't worry. <laughs> The other nice thing about the book, too, is for clinicians, I think, is it's it's a start on where to, to start researching because we always want to bring the evidence in. So, oh, okay, maybe I can find some articles on this topic. You know, it, it really it gets your brain kicked in. Yeah. To um, provide good good therapy. And then even in the back, having some places to go to look that, you know, somebody that's a skilled researcher is recommending because he's trialed it is helpful because you don't know what you're ordering off the internet all the time. I mean, you can buy so many reviews and, or, you know, people saying it's an amazing tool. And I'll tell you, there's been some stuff we've trialed that I'm just not impressed with. Mm -hmm. So this is a nice thing to have. And um, the last thing in this book, I don't remember what page it was on. Now I have a bookmark here for something. I have no idea what, but just talking about being a good enough therapist. So no, doing your homework, looking at your articles so that you can still provide some hope because mm-hmm. this is a devastating experience. Nobody asks for it. Some people don't always do what they should. So if you have a high blood pressure, make sure you take your medicine, but 
you know, not everybody asks for a stroke or nobody, nobody deserves anything like a stroke, but if you don't know your, if you don't know your role and you don't do the best you can do to continue to learn and continue to advance, then you're not always going to be able to provide that hope. And a lot of days that's all those folks have is little hope. So that's very yeah. true. Yeah. Pete yeah. gave us a lot of that. He sure did. Yeah. 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 Peace, hope, and love. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Is there anything else? Gosh, I don't know. It just stinks. It does. Um, I sure did have a lot of fun teasing him, and I think he enjoyed teasing me right back. So I think so, too. <laughs> I know. I remember. I remember this so clearly. I was, I was working from home. And I love sitting on the couch with my laptop on my lap. And I was doing some <laughs> research. I know. Well, it, this was kind of a warm weather day, but <clears throat> I was sitting on the couch working on my laptop and I had my phone face up and I saw an email notification come in about your donation. Oh, yeah. So I was, I looked at it and I was like, oh my goodness. So I emailed Pete right away, forwarded it. Like I said, did you see this? And he got right back to me. So he must have been <laughs> in a break too. And right away, we're like telling each other, we need to get her on the show. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it was just, it seemed like for things like that, we thought alike on. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. It's always fun. I remembered one other quick memory too that made me chuckle. Hold on, I'm going to look it up. Okay. Um, so, okay, I know I can tell you where it is. Let me look. Um, so we were discussing, oh, I remember it was right after I put my little picture up of Bryn having done her play, which she's my daughter. Okay. And we were talking about um, parenting is the most, drives the most brain plasticity in more in most typical people than any other life event. event. And he attached this article, Right. And I said, I'm going to have to print this report, this article later. I can't read this stuff. I didn't say that word either um, <laughs> on a computer screen, but I'll probably print it and bust out my old highlighter. And the article is, is titled, if I can click on it here, Parenting and Plasticity. He tells me not to read it <laughs> is his response because it's depressing <laughs> and our kids are really controlling us. And out of my smart mouth says, you needed an article to tell you that. <laughs> so, I said, I mean, kids are always in control. <laughs> they sure are. Oh, they know what I they're mean, doing. They do. They know how to push our buttons. <laughs> oh, we know how to push theirs, though. That's the better oh. part. We installed them. <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah, he talked about parenting, driving, neuroplastic change. He talked about stroke survivors recovery being like low level athletes playing a high stakes game. Oh, and now that's hard, isn't it? That is hard. Mm -hmm. And it, that made me start to think about like their training, that they have to do so much work like their training, that that's really what's required. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, but I think little things that have helped me is, um, so you guys had one 
podcast where I think you said the final number was 1,400 repetitions to work on, you know, brain plasticity, neuroplastic changes. And when I can just pull that number, like, and I can say there's evidence-based information to my clients. And then what we do is we calculate what's the minimum number, which, you know, they get tired. And so I'm like, here's your minimum number. So don't come back to me if you can't at least do this. (laughs) And they'll laugh, you know, I'll give them a hard time. But I'm like, this is what we want to do. We want to hit at least 60 repetitions twice a day for the next two weeks. And then let's see what you can do. And they're like, oh, oh, okay, I can do that. So let's say your neuromuscular, your e-stem machine goes for 15 minutes and the person can elicit four to five repetitions in that one minute. You know, we can calculate that number and then we have a target. And that target, that finite number, whether it's a perfect number or not, is irrelevant. If they can say, okay, Jenica says, my therapist says, you know, it, it, it helps a lot. It really, really does. So that's also kind of been a game changer for my clients to get an exact precise. We need at least this many to get started. Okay. So, and then we haven't had any patients come back since I give them that number. No, I'm just huh, kidding. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they go down they the road. <laughs> yeah. They go somewhere else where they get a magic pill of stroke and just fixed right like that. No. <laughs> yeah. Where they're yeah. pushed to the max. Oh, but no, I mean, it makes you look at the the survivor's point of view and it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And we I remember we did another episode where we were talking about um survivor perspectives of therapy and practitioner perspectives of therapy and survivors will do a lot more if we push them to do more, they oh, yeah. want to do more, but we're we we get afraid because we're not sure what to do and we don't want to do more harm. And um well. And, you know, if you take their, you take their vitals and and they're, and you're asking them how they're doing, you know, if you're, if you're bored, your patient's bored. And if they don't leave cognitively or physically exhausted, you didn't do your job. I mean, sorry. (laughs) Push them. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, and, you know, thankfully I run an outpatient private practice. So if our patients fall down, like we don't take it lightly, but we're like, good. Okay. You fell down. Let's work on getting up. You know, let's this is real life. This is real life. And I'm so thankful I have to work in a hospital system where it said, I mean, anybody can sue for anything, but I'm grateful that we look at that as a learning opportunity and not a failure. Yeah. Maybe take some of the fear out of it. Absolutely. So that the rational brain can take over if they win, if they fall in real life at their home or anyplace else. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love it. You do have a no-nonsense approach to uh, rehab. <laughs> yeah. I I would love to say that, you know, when I wanted to be an OT, I remember it all seemed like people came to therapy to get fixed and then they left and they just went on living how they used to live. And I, I'm glad to see that there's been more of a change that you come to therapy to tell us how it went at home, how your home exercise program went, how your ADLs were being performed, what trouble were you having and how can your therapist help you? The roles have kind of reversed as far as what's done in which setting. So I appreciate that because we need people to know we, we don't have a magic pill and you, you do have to get back to the job of living and what's difficult and how can we help? So, yeah. Yeah. It's more collaborative and a, a coaching type of model and absolutely more of a partnership. 
yeah. where you're you're actually helping them yeah. based on what they know they need and want. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And using the tools that you and Pete taught us. So that's good. Yeah, we're we're always trying to find some more tools to get in our toolboxes and to know how to use those tools. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. the hard part. <laughs> that is the hard part. Well, can I ask you, how did you and Pete meet? Oh, you sure can. I was going to wonder if I could or not. Yeah. Yeah. I love this story. So I have this mirror therapy program that yes. I, I wrote because, you know, I'm an OT who sees interventions that are evidence-based that work. And I noticed that people weren't using them. So I, I thought, well, if I write a program about this, maybe I can help therapists know how to help their patients. So I had some questions that I, I was, I don't know, I was just very tentative about some things. And I thought, well, who can I ask? And I had Pete's book always with me. And I thought, well, I should reach out to Pete and his former colleague. And I wrote three times, I wrote this email to both of them. And I took the former colleague's name off of the email and finally sent it on the third try because I was scared, you know, like they're famous people. And mm -hmm. who am I? You know, I'm just this therapist here in Buffalo, New York, trying to do my life. And he wrote back and I was like, oh my God, like, like oh, should I open the email? Yes, I should open the email. Yes, he should. So he told me what he would do to, to try to help me. And then he wrote back and said, well, I reached out to some OT friends of mine. They don't want to get involved. <laughs> We're too busy. We're too busy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's no big yeah. deal. That's so funny. I just, I took that information with me. And then one morning I was meditating and I thought, I wonder if I do this a different way. So I just emailed him. I wonder if I just approach it from this angle. And he wrote back, should we have a Zoom meeting? Oh, and wow. I, I know. So I said, okay, how do you say no to that? Right? Yeah. So we met through Zoom and he told me about some of the talks that he gave for different podcasts and stuff and um, asked me if I wanted to maybe do a podcast. And of course I went into panic mode because that's where I lived at that time in my life. Like I really felt like I had nothing to offer in terms uh -huh. of a podcast oh, and putting myself out there. Yeah. If anybody listened to the podcast with Suzanne and I, Suzanne's the same way, totally <laughs> introverted. Yeah. Always second guesses herself and she's freaking amazing. <laughs> I said, I don't have as much knowledge as you do. And he said, well, you have more knowledge than I do in working in a hospital and what do you say like i just i didn't know what to say so then i you know we got off of that call and i th i thought to myself did he really ask me about doing a podcast and i just kind of let it go and then he emailed me a couple podcast episodes that he had done and said so do you want to do it and i said yes because I was not going to pass up that opportunity. And I will tell you, it pushed me, I mean, farther than anything, anywhere I ever thought I would mm -hmm. possibly go. And it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And now when I let people know that we talked about 
should the podcast continue and he wanted it to, and I assured him that I would do everything I could. I, I felt like I have the confidence to do that. I don't have the connections that he has, but I can ask. Yeah. And that's all you can do mm-hmm. and everything and everything in life. And you know, there's, there's one or two answers. It's yes or it's no. Exactly. <laughs> so keep going. Yeah. Somebody wants to get on there and talk about their passion. Well, they do. And there are a lot of people who are doing good work in this yeah. world and we're all just connecting each other is really all we're doing. And the thing with rehab and stroke recovery is that not every intervention is going to work for every person. It's not every intervention is appropriate for every person, but it's finding the thing that works for you. That makes that person tick. And then mm-hmm. they go home and they're excited and they want to do more. Yeah. 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 So that's so my we got story. lots of ideas. I love that story. I did not know that. How brave <laughs> of you. That's great. Know. <laughs> you know, I can assure you I had a really bad stomachache after I did that because that's what happens to me when I get nervous. I get like the yeah, little squeeze. Stomachache. Yeah. yeah. You know, we always have people who get put into our life for one reason or another. And the I need I think the old phrase is a reason, a season, or a lifetime. So oh, I like have you heard that, that one? Yeah, mm-hmm. reason, a season, or a lifetime. And so you don't have to, to pick your poison with how Pete's was. It's his lifetime, but it was your season. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like he gave me a gift and now it's my turn to keep the gift, to keep giving yeah. the gift yeah. to others. And who knows what people are doing? I know people do write to us and tell us some, some nugget that changed their practice that they're, implementing in their practice so yeah yeah and if you think about that little ripple that keeps going on out so yeah yeah and i mean meeting you it's it's been fun meeting you (laughs) i know we do yeah we email each other sometimes we talk about books and (laughs) fun sometimes we talk about cussing (laughs) (laughs) yes we do yeah you don't have to be from texas to like those powerful words (laughs) <laughs> oh, this is so great. Thank you for asking about You're my welcome. Pete story. And thank you for, um, for joining me to share your Pete story, because I know that I know that your heart was hurting. I know my heart was hurting. And uh, I know other people's hearts are hurting as well. And I just want us to, to know that like, this is just common. And this is a common thing way that we feel when we lose somebody that we love. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really like this feeling. I'm not a big feelings person. So this really mm. frustrates me. Damn it. Feet. So no, it's, um, I, I think that I know not, I think I know that the work that two of you have done and it is work. I mean, I know it's work. I, I know you guys spend Friday nights talking and even though it's fun, it's still an obligation and it was an obligation and then all the work just to get those things live. But thank you. Thank you both for all you've done because it has made a difference, not only in my life, but the verbalization to the other therapist I work with and then how that trickles down to the clients. And over time, that trickles into a community that knows we're, we're doing our best to be up to snuff with information to help as many people as possible. And so you don't just touch the people you interview, you touch lots of people that have had a stroke or don't know they're going to have a stroke yet, but they know that there are good people out there because of all the work y'all have done and taught us. So 
Thank you. And keep it going. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your kind words. And I'm definitely doing what I can to keep it going. I have some, I have some pretty cool stuff coming up. Awesome. Well, you're welcome. Thank you again. Thank you for doing this for Pete on Pete's behalf. And, and we will, we'll miss the old show, but now you get to reinvent a new show. So keep it, keep the spirit live. It'll be good. I'm going to do my best. One thing about our conversation with Jenica and Suzanne that really stood out for me was Jenica's story about starting her own practice. I can still hear the pride in her voice. So since we're talking about your clinic, perhaps you could share with us the reasons for wanting to start something. Um, so my reason was really simple. Can I say one cuss word? Yes. Okay. My sister-in-law said that it was a pompous ass. And I love that phrase because I pompously believed that after working in multiple settings in the hospitals and nursing homes, um, never really an outpatient because quite frankly, it always intimidated me. Um, I thought that I could provide a place where services could be delivered to clients better. Mm -hmm. I just believed that I could. And strangely enough, it worked. Um, my sister-in-law came up with the name for me and the name stands for the Holy Trinity, God, Jesus, and the Holy spirit. The logo colors were my children's favorite colors that day. The next day they were vastly different colors. Um, and then the, the woman at the time, we do have two token males now and they, we do call them token males. I'm sure I'm not supposed to say that, but we love them. But all these women kept coming, wanting to work with me because they've all got 19, 20 years of experience. And so everybody's in their forties, fifties. Do we have a 60 year old yet? Is that our only group we don't have? Maybe. And it, Maybe, I don't know. And 70 year olds still wanting to provide services, but they just couldn't work full time anymore. Um, so when I have a group of women that are this passionate and detail focused, it does attract a certain person to our clinic. And then on top of that, we went with the business model of working with our clients one-on-one -on -one for the full hour, which means, yes, you're correct. I'm not going to get as rich as I could. And I hate to say that, but it's true. It is a for-profit business model, but the patients improve. They get the attention that they need for the restoration of whatever disability they're having. And it might not be full restoration, but we also can talk to them so that they can understand that even if it's not full, it's partial and they can still live as independently as possible. It's realistic <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. The end goal is perfection. Then we're all going to be out of business. Correct. Correct. Yeah. It's not about perfect. It's about better and yes. better. You can build on and make that even better. So that's good. Absolutely. I love what Pete said. It's not about perfect. It's about better. As a recovering perfectionist, these words hit me hard. Moving away from perfection to good enough is challenging, but it feels good because you move your projects forward. And moving forward is what we need to do. We need to bring our gifts to the world like Pete showed us. So in our first episode, 
learn non-use. Pete talked about something that he was proud of. Like what goes on inside of the brain during the acute, subacute, and chronic phases? Okay, so let's go through that. Um, and I have to say, like, there's not a, a ton of stuff in my career that I'm super proud of. But one of the things I am super proud of is the fact that the four phases after a stroke or any kind of brain injury, the four phases are something that I've defined, I think, more than anybody else on the planet. I know that Pete inspired me to do more in my practice, and I know that he inspired a lot of you. And I wonder if you're listening to this and you're, you're reflecting on the comments that Pete made about that thing that he was super proud of, identifying those phases. Have you done something that you're really proud of in your career, in your recovery, in your life? I think it's important that we acknowledge those things that we're proud of because we all have a talent. We all have a gift that we're bringing to the world. I would just like to say thank you to Jenica. Thank you to Pete. Thank you to all of the guests that we've had on Noggins and Neurons and all of our community connections for bringing your gifts and your talents to the world. Now we're going to hear from Pete's friend, Todd. My name is Todd, and I was friends with Pete starting in the summer of 1994. I had just finished my freshman year of college, and since I didn't drink, I needed something to do, and I got really addicted to playing basketball. So when I got home for the summer, I went looking for a pickup game nearby, and I met Pete at the courts at Memorial Park in Summit, New Jersey. And at first, it was just another one of the guys who played there, but we got along really well, probably passed to him a little more than others. We probably tried to get on each other's teams more often, and we would sometimes stick around afterwards and just chat for an hour. And this was after already playing two hours of basketball. And we really bonded over music. And when Pete told me about his past life in the world of rock and roll, I was transfixed and I wanted to hear all his stories. Um, I remember that a, a favorite one was the story about him trying to describe to Kurt Cobain just how big Nirvana was getting because of the Smells Like Teen Spirit video that was in heavy rotation on MTV. But Kurt Cobain was so strung out on heroin that he just could not process this information. So that story fascinated a 19-year-old me. My favorite Pete memory, it's probably not a specific story itself, but more about a time in my life. In my early 20s, for probably four or five years, every single Saturday was spent with Pete. It started with our basketball games. Then we'd go back to his house and make bad music in the basement. After that, usually he was tired and I was young enough, so I still had enough energy to entertain his kids for a while. Um, he had started a family at this point, and I remember Emma was just a toddler and she liked to be spun around by her arms. And I always thought, am I going to 
hurt her shoulders and Pete was a physical therapist and he said, she'll be fine. And uh, I remember I was the first person to feed Jesse with a bottle when he was just a newborn. So, and the day still wasn't over. And the evening they would always ask me to stay for dinner. And I always said yes, because his family was amazing. His parents were just the best, really worldly, great stories. And it just, it ended up being a 12 hour day, pretty much every Saturday. So here I am, you know, in my early twenties, spending every Saturday all day with this guy who's pushing 40. It's unlikely friendship, but it was real. I mean, we shared the same two passions in basketball and music, and he was just a great guy to talk to. And uh, I will always remember those Saturdays fondly. So what is my favorite podcast memory? Well, I'll admit that I don't know as much about the science. And while he's tried to explain it to me, it's really not something I know very well. But what I will always remember is how passionate he was about keeping the podcast and the blog going. And when his publisher, his book publisher specifically, said they didn't want that to go on, you know, I don't know why they would say this is an inexplicable decision. And he would not succumb to the contract they wanted him to sign. He, he fought back. He pushed back because he always wanted to do more work. He knew that he could help more people with the blog and with the podcast. So, you know, it meant a lot to him and it was really cool to see how hard he worked on that. I mean, how many people are that dedicated to their work and everything he was doing was helping stroke victims. So, um, I really admired that. Um, what have I learned from knowing Pete? So I think what I've learned from Pete is, you know, Pete was a very generous spirit. When we made music, both of us were drummers who picked up a guitar and ended up liking playing guitar more because you could write music. And Pete was better than I was at both instruments. Let's be clear there. Um, But when we would play, he would frequently let me play guitar and he would get behind the drums and this was, you know, this was definitely not his first choice, but, you know, I was young and enthusiastic and I really appreciated this because playing music with others is just magical. And I had never done that before. And the way that this, what he taught me here is that, you know, there are times when it's good to step aside and let someone else have the spotlight. And this is something I've really struggled with. I'm addicted to playing soccer and even though I'm in my late forties now and have three fake joints, I don't want to stop playing. And a lot of people have suggested, Oh, why don't you try coaching? But I have trouble not being in the game myself, but in the music world, I've started a songwriting circle and my goal there is to help others because I'm never going to be an amazing musician. It's something I do for fun, but some of these people in the circle have real ambitions and they want to improve. So in this way, I'm doing what Pete did for me and I'm stepping aside and making space for these people to shine. And I think that's something that I learned from Pete because, you know, even at the time I knew that he was doing something really nice for me. So it's that generosity of spirit, which I think he demonstrated in many areas of his life. Todd, you seem like an amazing friend. To all the listeners, Todd and I have had a few email exchanges. And he's the one who hooked me up with Pete's song. And I appreciate that. 
Thanks, Todd. All right, now let's hear from Alec. Hi, my name is Alec Hickman. I am a PTA student at Sinclair College, where I was lucky enough to have Pete as an adjunct professor. Um, I don't think I realized how lucky I was to have Pete as a professor until he gave his neuroplasticity lecture last fall. His lecture was towards the end of the term, which is a very stressful time. I remember myself and some of my classmates complaining about having to go to another lecture when we had so many assignments we needed to do, but we could not have been more wrong. This was one of the most interesting, impactful lectures that I have ever been to. Um, as soon as the lecture started, the mood in the room really changed. Pete was normally a little reserved, but his personality really came through. He was cracking jokes. He had all of these activities planned. Uh, he was so passionate about what he was doing and what he was saying that it was difficult to not become invested in the lecture. He had this way of just making these very complex subjects easy to understand and then giving ways to apply them. Pete became a bit of a rock star in class after this, like small circles would form around him on breaks where students would ask him questions and just talk and listen to stories. <laughs> and uh, it just in summary, Pete was a very passionate and amazing educator and was a great friend. And he will truly be missed. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. We have a very supportive listener, Sarah, who emails quite often. And we appreciate those emails, Sarah. Keep, please keep them coming. Love them so much. While Sarah is not at a place where she's ready to have her voice out here for the world to hear, she did write some very thoughtful words. Sarah says, Hi, Deb. I'm so, so sorry to hear about Pete. I haven't stopped thinking about him, his family, and you all day. Just to reiterate what I have said in previous emails, I have found the podcast so inspiring, helpful, and accessible. It has genuinely changed the way I think and support those I am working with. Thank you to you both. From the podcast, I also read Peter's book, Stronger After Stroke, and have recommended this to colleagues and caregivers. I also attended Pete's training, Neuroplastic Model of Spasticity. Pete was so easy to understand and explained this in a simple way. Not easy when the subject is so complex. His website is also full of brilliant information, which I have referred many a person to. I am so grateful that I read the recommendation to listen to the podcast on Facebook that day. It has honestly taken me on a journey I will continue with. Thank you, Pete, for being so friendly, approachable, knowledgeable, and inspiring. Please keep the podcast going, Deb. You are equally amazing. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah refers to Pete's blog, the Stronger After Stroke blog, and I will have a link for that in the show notes for this show. And also, there are two episodes on spasticity that you might be interested in listening to. So first, there's Neuroplastic Beats Spastic from June 2nd, 2021. Now, the one thing that they do have is finger flexion. And often therapists say, you cannot let them flex the fingers. Because if you do, you will strengthen the overwhelmingly strong flexors. And if you do that, you will make spasticity worse, which is not true. Spastic muscles are weak. So even if you strengthen them, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But you're not trying to strengthen them. You're just trying to activate them. 
How are you going to reestablish brain control over the finger flexors if you don't allow them to flex the fingers? But what about a ball, a squishy ball? Who doesn't like a squishy ball? You squish into the ball, it reestablishes brain control over the flexors, thereby reducing spasticity. That's the whole thing. After I listen to that, I sometimes know that, like, I think about how we get stuck in our practices as clinicians, and we think that we have to know everything. Well, I sure don't. And I know that I need a lot of repetition. Anytime I learn anything, it takes me a lot of mindfulness and a lot of practice. So if you have spasticity, or you know someone who does, or if you work with people who experience spasticity, I highly recommend listening to this one. Pete and I also talked about measuring spasticity, and that episode was released on July 25th, 2021. I don't know. I just, I love people and I love our professions. And I especially love when we work together, like all of us, including the patients, and we all work together and we have good outcomes for everybody. And I remember a time when it was like that. I hear you, sister. So. So we're going to start a movement. We have so many movements in this podcast that we want to start. <laughs> we do. That I think maybe our, we're watering down the movement tolerance of the fine folks at home. Um, so what are we supposed to be talking about today? Well, today we are supposed to be talking about spasticity measurement. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm, I, I think I'm ready. Okay, good. So- we did a whole episode on spasticity. So this would be a good adjunct to that episode. It's great to treat spasticity, to hopefully reduce spasticity. Uh, the question is, if you're not measuring it, then how do you know that you're reducing it? And it's weird because clinically, um, a lot of OTs, PTs, um, but geez, just clinicians in general, nurses, whoever, even doctors don't measure it enough. And when they do, maybe they don't measure it accurately. So maybe that's what we can help out with. Yeah. We talk about it in our notes, high tone, low tone, tight at end range. So the word tone is bothersome to me just because I'll assume that you haven't had any brain injuries, Deb, or any other things that would affect this quote tone. And yet you have tone. There is normal tone. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about today is really spasticity. And of course, the sort of opposite of that, which would be flicidity, hypertonic, hypotonic, all these words tone, I don't like it because it's nobody's defined it really well. And I think there are people that have, but they're way over my pay grade. I prefer flaccid, normal, or spastic. That's, those are the three things. Nor, and the only way I'd use tone is with normal. But I don't know if you agree with that. Well, that certainly simplifies everything. Both neuroplastic beat spastic and measuring spasticity are popular episodes with over 400 downloads each. I am so sorry to hear the bad news. Such sad, sad news. I remember going to a class that he taught in Colorado he was an amazing speaker and presenter, and I love that he had started a podcast, and 
He had a website, and I still use it to this day and will continue to use it. It is full of information. He was such a huge contributor to the therapy world. We will miss him. Like I said before, there are links in the show notes to access Pete's blog, Stronger After Stroke. There is a wealth of information on that site. Truly, there's something for everyone. Two of my favorite topics that he wrote about are ESTIM and mental practice. Pete dispels the myth that ESTIM is hard to use. Now, difficulty level is a common reason that clinicians give for not using it or other physical agent modalities. My theory is that there's a learning curve that's needed and people either don't have the time to learn or they don't have enough opportunities to practice. I also think that clinic culture plays a role. And if people are afraid that they're going to look foolish in front of others while they're learning, they may not even try. So I'm putting links for Pete's blog article that explains where to place the pads for activating the wrist extensors and to lift up the foot in the show notes. Also know that there are parameters for using eSTEM for clinicians and survivors to be aware of. So make sure that you know what those are. The other topic is mental practice. Pete has a link to access free mental practice recordings. All you have to do is look for the orange button on the upper right hand of the blog page. Visualization is a powerful, effective way to get the brain areas that control movement firing. And no one even has to know that you're doing it. So I say, click on that orange button, give it a try. And those recordings are provided to you for free by Sabo. So many of you have questioned me and asked what happened with Pete. Pete had ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And he died from Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Creutzfeldt or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is a degenerative brain disorder that leads to dementia and ultimately death. The symptoms can be similar to those of other dementia-like brain disorders, such as Alzheimer's disease, but with Creutzfeldt-Jakob, it usually progresses much more rapidly. And that's what happened in Pete's case. So interestingly, Pete didn't tell me that he had a diagnosis of ALS until he had to. And I'm glad about that. I, I truly am glad about that. And although he was apologetic for not being upfront about it, I did not believe that he needed to apologize to me at all. And I was emphatic about that. I do not believe that any person should be known by a diagnosis unless they want to. I don't believe that it's anyone's business to know such things unless the person wants it to be known. I and many of us had the good fortune to know Pete, the real Pete, without knowing anything about ALS or thinking about that in the backs of our minds. And to this day, I say I wouldn't have had it any other way. 
So Pete's friend Todd reached out to their mutual friend, Matt, who wrote, I'm Matt and Pete and I were friends and bandmates about 20 years ago when I lived in Cincinnati. Todd told me you're working to collect stories about Pete to save and maybe share on the podcast. Pete and I met when I was looking for a band, my first one. He was so relaxed and had a great ear for writing songs. I was nervous being a beginning guitar player, but he took it in stride and helped me learn a lot about collaboration and having fun creating music. We used to hang out away from the band too and would play basketball or have dinner or see live music. Pete had a great basketball fake crossover move that would fool me every time. He was a challenging tennis player too, enjoying making me run around the court with lobs and dropping the ball just over the net. Pete was also super funny and could make me laugh without being mean or sarcastic. Eventually, I moved away and was very sad to go, but Pete and I stayed in touch and I visited them a few times when I was back in Ohio. He would always let me know when he was giving a lecture or training in the cities where I lived. A few times in LA, we got together with another friend of his and had dinner and jammed at a studio together. We'd fall right back into rocking our old tunes and reminiscing. I was crushed when he told me he had ALS. I have an aunt who died from it, and I understood that it was a terrible disease. I am sad I didn't make it back to see Pete one more time. I'm grateful for getting to connect with Todd and share stories and remember our friend. Matt wrote a second time as well. He said, I was thinking about Pete and his book and work teaching people about stroke recovery. It's pretty amazing that he did something that will continue helping people, even though he's not with us anymore. I hope there's something I do that will last beyond my time. It's inspiring. Matt, I'm right there with you. I 100% agree. Pete is just easy to know. He was easy to collaborate with. And we had a ton of laughs on the podcast. Pete and I, we met every Friday night from April until October. And we had fun. So one thing that I learned from Pete is it's okay to put yourself out to the world. I think back to a year ago and how scared I was to email him. And here we are. I am so glad to be a part of a community where we are all inspiring each other. And something tells me, Matt, that whatever it is that you do, you inspire those around you. Pete's college roommate, Tom O'Brien, also wrote, Tom said, I write as someone who knew Pete during the 79-80 school year. We were freshman roommates at Ithaca College. He had just gotten home from Iran after having lived there for a few years. That young version of Pete had no idea what direction his life was headed in. He was a physical education major who resented what seemed to me to be his only challenging course, biology. He left the school after a couple of semesters, and we had not been in contact since. To have recently come across his name after all these years and see everything that he had accomplished is remarkable. Despite our having been out of touch, I hope I'm allowed to feel proud of him because I do. I'm very sorry about his having died and extend warm wishes to his family 
and others closest to him. Tom, I would say that you have the right to feel proud of him. Absolutely. Here's a lovely message from Gina. Hi, I am Gina and I am a stroke survivor and I have aphasia. I recently read Pete's book and found out about noggins and neurons. I am enamored with the topics, and I am a nurse as well. Uh, Deb and Pete, I am sure, have a special place in heaven. Um, I am missing the chance to meet Pete, but I am uh, planning on meeting Deb. Thank you for everything. Bye. Gina, thank you for your kind words. I'm so glad that you find the podcast topics helpful. And I know Pete would be happy to hear that as well. One of the things that he was concerned about when we first started talking about doing this was having enough to talk about to keep the podcast going. I was never concerned about that until he left. Then I had a moment, but that moment passed quickly as I've moved along. Gina, like you, I am missing the chance to meet Pete in person. I always had this idea that I'd catch up with him in a physical location, but that's not going to happen. Not in this lifetime. I love that you said that you and I will meet and I can't wait for that to happen. Okay. So if you've been listening more recently, Since Pete passed away, you might have heard me talk about the first official Noggins and Neurons trading card, which is the All-Star Pete trading card. This idea started on day one of our podcast. When it comes to neuroscientists, if they had, you know how they have baseball cards and like soccer cards? (gasps) I would have, I would, I would like... Ed Taub's, Edward Taub's rookie card would be worth like a fortune as far as I'm concerned. So I know beyond the shadow of any doubt that Pete deserves the honor of all-star status here at Noggins and Neurons. Like I said before, he was emphatic about this podcast continuing on. I am beyond happy about that. And I know that you are too. So if you want to help and get the very first Noggins and Neurons trading card of Pete, you can. Every person who makes a $20 donation can get Pete's all-star trading card and just look for the link to that in the show notes. 
We also heard from stroke survivor, Rick Hudgens. Rick says, I had an ischemic stroke three years ago at age 63. Peter Levine's Stronger After Stroke was one of the first books I read, and I sure am glad. I was at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago for three months, and was it was exciting and frightening. But Levine had planted a lot of curiosity in me about the limits of recovery. Doctors couldn't promise anything. I started working with a physical trainer three times a week. My initial goal was to do one push-up and lift a 12-inch skillet with one arm. It took about nine months to accomplish that. Today, three years later, I'm doing burpees, push-ups, and preparing to run a 5K in June. I'm confident my progress is largely due to reading Levine. I could have settled for so much less, and I'm glad I didn't. Rick has a quote at the end of his email. Every day I get closer to the brink of everything by Parker Palmer. That's a great quote. You know what, Rick? I'm glad you didn't settle for less either. Keep us updated on that 5K. Pete and I also had a great chat with Stephen Heim, a stroke survivor, and Jennifer Miller and Meredith Drake, two PTs from Johns Hopkins, who are very knowledgeable about treating cerebellar ataxia. Stephen is a member of the Noggins and Neurons Facebook group and wanted to know more about how to improve ataxia. We're thankful that Pete always seemed to know where to find the answers. Brain stimulation program that we're doing at Hopkins is we're applying transcranial direct current stimulation to people who've had multiple types of brain injuries. Most common population that we see are strokes. The concept of this non-invasive brain stimulation is that it promotes neuroplasticity. And so we combine it with intensive therapy. So you come every day for three weeks and we're trying to do this really intensive therapy plus the non-invasive brain stimulation. So we're hoping it's like a double whammy of neuroplasticity and that we're really trying to get the brain to get excited, excite those cortical tissues and get them to start reorganizing and healing themselves. We have two great Noggins and Neurons episodes, this episode and next, about cerebellar ataxia. In particular, we're going to focus on ataxia caused by brain injury and stroke to the cerebellum. The pathophysiology of ataxia is many and varied. There are inherited forms. There are forms that you can get from toxins. You can get it from vitamin D deficiency. You can get it from COVID, usually from severe cases of COVID. And there's a bunch of other vectors for ataxia. And some forms of ataxia are idiopathic. It just shows up and nobody knows why. Ataxia usually involves the cerebellum, but not always. But again, in these episodes, we're gonna focus on damage to the cerebellum caused by stroke and other forms of acquired brain injury. Cerebellum is Latin for little brain, and it's at the back of your head at the bottom of the skull. It's a fascinating part of the brain. It's a part of the brain that is very dense in neurons, and it essentially coordinates coordination. If the cerebellum has problems, coordination has problems. 
And to help us discuss cerebellar ataxia, we have three stellar guests. First, Stephen Heim. He's a stroke survivor. His stroke hit the cerebellum and he has cerebellar ataxia. And this is how my interest in this subject started. We met on our Noggins and Neurons Facebook page and we went back and forth with some emails and I had a Zoom meeting with him. And I realized that the questions that he had about his pathology were way over my head. Not only does Stephen have cerebellar ataxia, before his stroke forced him into retirement, he was an intensive care unit nurse. So he knew quite a bit about medicine to begin with. And I don't think that retirement is gonna stick because he's already on to his next academic adventure and a new chapter in his career. So I hunted around to try to find someone who could help Stephen. And at this point, me as well, because I started to get really interested in the subject. So I found the perfect people to ask about cerebellar ataxia and how to mitigate it. Two physical therapists who work at the Johns Hopkins Ataxia Center in Baltimore, Maryland. The Hopkins Ataxia Center is part of the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and it's the part that's dedicated to this one sequelae, ataxia. And they've assembled an incredible team of professionals to help patients deal with ataxia. I managed to convince two physical therapists there, Meredith Drake, and Jennifer Miller to help navigate this rich, interesting, and complex pathology. This is going to be a good one. And if you make a mistake and it's funny, we're keeping it. <laughs> so that I got to just warn you about that. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get started. So Deb and I would like to welcome Meredith Drake and Jennifer Miller, both physical therapists and both from Johns Hopkins Hospital. Welcome Meredith and Jennifer. Thank you. I do think that Jen pronounces her last name Millar. Millar. No, it's oh. Miller. Oh, really? So I've been saying it wrong for, what? how long have we been working together? Six years? See, no, this is funny. <laughs> this is key. I, I thought I screwed up. You fat in the podcast. <laughs> Jen, literally the entire department says Millar. You haven't corrected any of us? I, I it's, it's, how do you say the, how do you say the word P-I-L-L-A-R? That's, that's a good point. That's a good, I, I that's I my understand. grandfather's argument of why we <laughs> say it the way we do. Okay. I will start getting the word. It's, it's Miller. But spelled with an A. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is going just, just the same way it always goes. We like it. We're also going to have Stephen Heim that's going to come in a little bit later. And he's really interesting because he's going to add a lot of ballast to this conversation because he's a stroke survivor. He's had a cerebellar stroke and prior to the stroke was an intensive care unit nurse. So that's going to be great. But look, I don't even know anything about the cerebellum, let alone cerebellar ataxia or any other kind of ataxia. So Jennifer... Meredith, where do you think we should start with this? That clip is from part one of Heim, Drake, and Miller, Cerebellar Ataxia, released on November 4th, 21. I have to admit that I was stumped when Stephen asked that question in our Facebook group and I started doing some research. I came up empty-handed. It's a great episode, along with part two, if you want to learn more about cerebellar ataxia, as well as hearing what it's like from the survivor's perspective. Stephen also reached out to me by email. Stephen said, Deb, 
I'm sorry. I'm just now saying this, but I'm so sorry for Pete's passing. His book was the first one I read after my strokes. After he was talking about the consultations he offered on the podcast, I reached out to him and we talked. It was during that conversation that he told me he had been diagnosed with ALS. We had several email exchanges after that about how he was doing and even became Facebook friends. After our initial conversation, he invited me to be on the podcast and I learned much. I did too, Stephen. I know doing a podcast can be challenging. You have your work cut out for you, finding guests, reading articles, and crafting questions, just to name a few things. My thoughts are definitely with you. Thank you for continuing the charge. You're doing a great job. Thank you, Stephen, for your amazing words. Pete was on a podcast called Strokecast, and Bill from Strokecast wrote and told me that he was sorry to learn of Pete's passing. Pete was on his show in 2020, and he was an amazing guest and a fantastic advocate for the stroke community. Bill recorded a special episode to share his thoughts, and I will put the link for that in the show notes. And I love the way that Bill ended this email. Have a better day. Thank you. Bill Monroe. This wraps up part one of Remembering Pete. This is a long one. And if you've listened all the way to the end, my guess is that Hearing people share their Pete stories helps your heart and soul. I know that it really helps mine. I appreciate so much everyone who reached out and shared their Pete story, whether it's through audio or through email. This is just a taste of how Pete's work touched people's lives. Thank you to everyone who contributed. Thank you to all of you who listen. Stay tuned for part two of Remembering Pete with Doro and Lynette from the NeuroHub. And now, as promised, here is Pete's song, The Glow. Enjoy. I have seen the temple. 